And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some of the some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness is not forsaken, the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you will go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. All right, you may be seated. Thanks, Matt. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you, good to be with you this morning, uh, and good to jump back into the book of Ruth with you this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, if you can turn to Ruth chapter 2, if you're not there already, Ruth chapter 2. My name is Jonathan Mosier, by the way. It's my privilege to uh, open up the Word uh, with you and for you this morning, and so we are glad that you're here with us. As I was reading uh, this story from the book of Ruth this week, the the element that jumped out to me about it is that the book of Ruth um, is in many ways a love story. Uh, It's a story of redemption. It's a story of God's sovereignty. It's a story of his providence. In the chapter that we're going to look at this morning, it's really the story of the beginning of a courtship uh, between these two characters, Ruth uh, and Boaz. And so as I was reading it, I couldn't help but think back uh, to my own relationship with my wife. Uh, In 2005, I was in college. Um, I was in South Carolina for school, and so I had ended up at the school in South Carolina because I had several friends who were going down there and was kind of hanging out with them and chasing them around and wanting to have a good time. And and, uh, likewise, my wife was down at this same school in South Carolina because her parents were alumni. Now, Jessica and I uh, grew up about 40 miles apart. So to give you a little bit of background, um, our families actually go back quite a few years and had known each other. My dad and her dad were good friends, and they had served uh, on a leadership team of a denominational uh, committee together for several years. They were both pastors in southeastern Wisconsin. Uh, my church growing up had helped, uh, had helped uh, support Jessica's dad's church as he had begun the work of church planting. And, and so our histories as a family went far back, but Jessica and I didn't know each other at all. 
In fact, I don't, I'm not even sure we knew that each other existed uh, outside of maybe we had heard one another's names growing up. And so as we were both down at this school in South Carolina, we, we had come together for a, a prayer meeting one day, and they had divided us up by state and said, hey, if you're from Wisconsin, go to this particular room. So I show up, and uh, of the roughly 6,000 students who were on that campus, there was maybe 75 or so that were from Wisconsin. And so I walk into this room, and there sits Jessica. Now, before you start uh, seeing all the romantic bits of it, we were both seeing other people at the time, all right? But we had an initial conversation, talked a little bit, uh, kind of compared stories and talked a little bit about our families, and, and that was kind of the end of that. We had seen each other around campus a little bit. We had some common friends and things, but it was about a year and a half later that my brother sister-in-law and I were invited down by a friend of ours to uh, an event at, at the church uh, where, where this friend was working. And so he said, hey, we're having this event going on. You guys should come down and we can all hang out together. And so I go to this church realizing that it's the Hollenbeck's church. It's my wife's family. I realize it's their church, but having no realization or not putting it together in my head that she would be there. And in the year and a half that had passed, we had both uh, stopped seeing the people that we were seeing. And so when I walked in and saw her, I was struck by, oh, there's, there's Jessica. There she is. And so we had begun to talk that evening, and, and, and as we talked, it turned into hours of conversation, and we started having uh, more conversation about some of our shared history that we didn't even realize. We discovered that there were events that we had been at as kids and into high school, uh, that we were both at the same events but just didn't know each other and hadn't interacted with each other. We realized that Jessica's father, who's a, an excellent trumpet player, had actually played trumpet at one of my sister's weddings. Um, all of these different connections that we had, these really weird uh, these really weird network connections that we just didn't even realize um, were in our past. And so all of that led us ultimately to dating and, and now to marriage. We've been married for 12 and a half years, going on 13 years. And so um, as we think back on that now, we can't help but see God's hand of sovereignty in it. And what seemed as if it was just something that was occurring by chance in the moment, we look back on it now and go, man, God couldn't have been guiding our paths more than he was. And so these people that grew up 40 miles apart meet each other 900 miles from home. So we continue to marvel this, to this day at God's goodness and sovereignty and leading us together in ways that we wouldn't have expected. And as many twists uh, as our relationship had, and, and if we were to go on with all of the different comparisons and connections, we would be here for far longer than anyone wants to be here. But with all of those things happening, what we find in the story of Ruth and Boaz is far more unexpected. It is a truly unlikely love story that has God at its center. And this book has proven to be an insightful, an insightful perspective, not only into the character and nature and providence and sovereignty of God, but also into humanity and relationships. And so if you've been with us, you've heard the story of this family that we've been talking about, uh, really headed up by this woman named Naomi. Naomi had grown up in Israel. She had married uh, this man named Elimelech. Elimelech's name literally means God is king. His name itself was a testament and a declaration of the goodness and the sovereignty of God. And yet when tragedy and, and heartbreak stru struck the town of Bethlehem where they were from, this place that was named the House of Bread was all of a sudden struck with famine, Elimelech finds himself in a crisis of faith wondering if God truly is good, wondering if he's sovereign, wondering if he's 
truly providential in the way that he interacts with his people. And so Elimelech does what many of us are tempted to do in moments like that. He decides to make his own luck. He decides to head out on his own and ignore the will of God, ignore the character and the nature of God, and try to make things happen on his own. If God isn't providing the way that I want him to provide, in the timing that I want him to provide, then I will just have to provide for myself. And so he takes his family and his two young boys, and they head out into this country called Moab. Moab was a, was a nation that historically had been at war with Israel, though this happens in a time of relative peace. To give you a little bit of background on Moab, this is a place that worshipped a demon god. They were so far from the one true god of Israel that they were actually worshipping a demon god, a, a god who was known for his violence and vileness. So they head off into this land, and much to Naomi's heartbreak, her two sons marry two women who did not follow or know or trust in God. And shortly thereafter, Naomi's husband Elimelech dies, followed soon after by her two sons, Malon and Kilion. And all of a sudden, these three women, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, are left fending for themselves in a time in history when women had nearly no value, no real place in society outside of family, and no means for provision outside of that of their husbands or family. And so Naomi says, I need to head back to the place I'm from. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. I hear they have food once again, and you too should go back to your homes, go back to your people. And so we find Orpah leaving and Ruth staying. And in this impassioned speech, Ruth says to Naomi, no, no, don't, don't send me on. I want to stay with you, and your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. And what you find in this moment is Ruth becoming a believer. She's experiencing conversion. And so she goes to Bethlehem as this godly, single, young widow. So last week, as we talked about it, Ruth goes out into the fields to glean, to gather food for herself and for Naomi. And at this time, farmers would harvest their fields, but they would leave crops standing at the edge of their field, right on the margins, that were specifically intended for those who were, in fact, marginalized. For those who could not provide for themselves, for those who did not have food or income, food would be provided for them by the generosity of these people. And so Ruth goes out, she meets Boaz, and we're told in chapter 2 that she happened upon a field owned by Boaz. And so Dave talked at length about the idea of this phraseology that she happened on this field. And God's sovereignty of all the places she could have landed, of all the places that God could have led her, he leads her directly to this man named Boaz where God functions in this moment as a loving father caring for and providing for his daughter. And not only is this field owned by a man who's generous, but this is also owned by a man who is a distant relative of her deceased husband. And so as Boaz interacts with her and has this initial conversation, he instructs her, don't go to anyone else's field. You stay in my field. You glean from me. I'll take care of you. I'll keep, a, I'll keep an eye out for you. I'll watch over you. And Ruth is so overwhelmed by the care and the generosity of Boaz that she says to him, why are you being so generous? And if you look at the response of Boaz, you start to see a picture of the kind of man that he is. 
Because what Boaz cites in this moment isn't the fact that he was attracted to Ruth. It wasn't that she had anything to offer socially or or culturally. It wasn't going to be any sort of advancement that he received by being in a relationship with her. But if you notice what he responds with in verse 11, he says, I have seen the way that you care for your mother-in-law, and I've seen your devotion to God. And likewise, Ruth is struck by Boaz's tenderness and kindness. And what we see in this text this morning is the deepening of this relationship. Ruth has been working in the field all day. She's a mess and she's sweaty and her clothes might even be torn from working in the field and her hair is a mess and her, she's got dirt under her fingernails and she finds herself in this moment where Boaz comes to her and says this in verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. Now this seems like a very insignificant thing to us. It seems uh, like, like he's just inviting her to have a meal. But understand that what's happening in this culture and in this time is Boaz is extending generosity and honor to Ruth. I mean, think about this. Ruth is a poor, foreign widow. And she belonged to a hated nation that worshipped a demon god. There is nothing about her that would have been attractive for a good Jewish man looking to do right by his God other than the fact that she loved the Lord and cared for her family. And so this woman who has no status whatsoever and no place in society who who would have been considered at best a beggar and a foreigner and who would never have deserved to, be, to have been invited into the home, finds herself sitting at the table in a place of honor. What Boaz is doing in this moment is extending to her a place of belonging. He is declaring her worth to everyone that is present. And in this generous meal, what you find is the grace of God extended to Ruth. See, gleaning at this time was intended as a means of communicating God's covenantal care for his people. God had said to his people, I want you to obey me and I want you to listen to me and I want you to love me and I want you to know me and understand this, Israel. Whether or not you do those things, I will provide for you and I'll care for you. Though you're the least of all the nations, though you bring nothing to the table, though you have no power and no significance and no influence, I will continue to love you just based on my own generosity and my own character of love. And so what he said to them is, I'm going to be so generous to you and I'm going to care for you so much that I want you to leave the edges of your fields untouched so that those who are marginalized and those who are outcasts and those who are foreigners in particular can come in and glean those crops and through your generosity they can see the generosity and the love of God. See, gleaning wasn't just a means of caring for people societally, it was a declaration of the God that these people knew and loved and served. And certainly Boaz would have understood the expectation that he had as a field owner to provide these things, but Boaz extends this grace exponentially. Not only does he invite Ruth to have the leftover crops in his field, but he says, come into my very house, sit at my table with me. He says, take this bread and dip it in this wine. And Boaz, of his own generosity, says, come and eat and rest. 
So the question that we have to answer then is this, how is it that an invisible God becomes visible to a people who do not know him, trust him, or even believe in him? And the answer is that God makes himself known through the grace and the generosity of his people. See, Boaz, in a very real sense here, is putting hands and feet to the invisible God that he knew. That's what Martin Luther what said, meant when he said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbors do. It's a means by which your life becomes an open Bible for those that are around you, as Dave mentioned last week. And he's doing this. Notice what Boaz does. He does this in the most ordinary way imaginable. He opens his table. I think there's a very incredibly practical lesson for us in that. This is what the Bible means when it talks about hospitality. We mentioned this a few weeks ago, but hospitality is not specifically, uh, is not specifically geared um, from one Christian to another. When the Bible talks about hospitality, it's talking about the way that Christians interact with those who do not know Christ. That by means of your interaction with them, by means of your love and compassion toward them, by means of opening your life to them, they are getting a picture and a vision of who your God is. So understand this, it is easy to be kind and generous when there is advantage to be had. It is easy to be kind and it is easy to be generous when there's money to be made. It's easy to be kind and it's easy to be generous when relationships are going well with those individuals. But what does it look like to extend yourself to someone when it doesn't benefit you at all. Or maybe even when it would hurt your reputation and your standing. What does it look like for us to open up our lives in the way that Boaz does? To be so open-handed with the things that God has graciously and generously given us that our lives become a testament to the goodness of our God. And so Boaz says, come take the bread and dip it in the wine. And if that language jumps out at you, it should. Because what he's saying here sounds a lot like communion. Maybe not in the sense of communion directly with God, but certainly in the sense of communion one with another. I mean, this is this is Boaz playing out what James chapter 2 means when it says that you are not to show special attention to those who look like you or to those who are wealthy or to those who can offer you something, but that you are to extend yourself for the stranger and the outcast. And look what happens as a result. End of verse 14. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. That word literally means embarrass. Do not embarrass her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Now, the law at this time stated that all good believing Jewish field owners needed to do was leave a few crops standing for those that were poor so that that the poor could go around and glean them. But Boaz says specifically to his men, I want you to go out of your way to bundle some food and leave it for her. And he goes out of his way to say, I do not want you to embarrass her, and I do not want you to rebuke her. In other words, don't call her out. You see Boaz's loving care and concern for this woman, even in the way that he interacts. He says, I don't want, you to, I, I don't want her to feel like a charity case. Leave something for her, but allow her to do this work. Don't embarrass her. Don't call her out. 
verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. So here's this incredibly hard-working woman. She's working the entire day until the evening comes, and it says that she was left with an ephah of barley. Now there's all kinds of, if you look at commentaries, there's all kinds of speculation as to what an ephah is, and, and, and the way that they measure that ranges across the board. Some people say it's about five gallons worth of food, not just stalks and branches, but actual food. Other people say it was about 30 pounds worth of food. One estimate said that it was actually, uh, that an ephah was actually a container that was the size of an average person. It's a very odd way to describe something. But imagine, imagine at the end of this day, Ruth having so much food that she's carrying this bundle of food wrapped up on her back and it is the size of an average person. The point is not the ephah of barley. The point is to say she was dealt with incredibly generously. She had more food than she needed. She had seen Boaz's generosity and ultimately had seen God's generosity towards her in it. In fact, it's estimated that this much food would have been about two weeks' worth of wages, and it's given to her in one day. So it's no surprise then when you see Naomi's reaction in verse 18. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And again, we just need to stop and look at the character and the nature of Ruth. I mean, what a beautiful example of generosity Ruth and Boaz are. Here's Boaz caring for Ruth, loving her, protecting her, looking out for her. He's not doing this for some selfish motivation, for some ill-gotten drive. He's doing this because he sees a woman in need, and he wants to genuinely care for her and love her. And Ruth, in turn, is so incredibly generous with her mother-in-law. This is the beauty of this burgeoning relationship where you have two generous people interacting with each other, two givers in a relationship. And all of us have seen examples or maybe even been involved in relationships where that whole, in- where, where that whole interaction was abused. Where rather than having two givers who are looking out for one another and looking out for others in their life, you have one giver and one taker. And inevitably what happens in a relationship like that is it begins to turn abusive. One, t- one person takes advantage, begins to manipulate the other person. Or maybe even more commonly, you have two takers, where you have people who are in a relationship solely for what they can get out of it, solely for their own advantage. I mean, this is the world largely in which we live now. It's not to say that true romance or true love is dead. It's not to say that those who don't know Jesus can't have loving, generous relationships with one another. But all you need to do is look at pop culture and see the references that are made all throughout magazines and newspapers and websites to see how people view relationships. I remember reading several months back uh, an article in The New Yorker where they were talking about what it is that drove young New Yorkers into relationship. And one of the number one motivations was they were looking for somebody that was either going to aid them in their career or not get in the way of their career. First of all, what an incredibly low bar. That's all that it takes. And second of all, what happens when that relationship takes a turn? What happens when someone loses their job or when they get a bad prognosis from the doctor? What happens when a child gets sick or is born with some sort of illness or disease that takes time away from your work? 
an incredibly selfish desire. And for some in our culture, it has nothing to do maybe with, uh, with, with, um, with, with career aspirations, but maybe it just has to do with your own physical appetites. Just looking for somebody who can engage you physically and personally, and that's all you're looking for from it. I mean, these things are vapid and passing. And what you find in Ruth and Boaz is this incredible devotion, commitment, and care and the foundation of that commitment and that care is beginning to be borne out right at the very beginning of their relationship in their generosity, not only towards one another, but towards others. And when you have a relationship like this, understand it's not only a blessing to those who are in that relationship, but it's a blessing to those who are around. Because notice Naomi's reaction in verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? I mean, imagine this. Here comes Ruth coming back with, with a bundle the size of an average person on her back. And, and Naomi's reaction is, where in the world did you get this food? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, listen to this, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. What you find in this passage is the beginning, and not only the beginning of a new relationship, but it's the beginning of a turn for Naomi. Because do you remember what Naomi said just one chapter earlier after the death of her husband and the death of her sons? She said, don't even call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And in the midst of heartache and in the midst of trial and tribulation and even death, what you find with Naomi is someone who is riddled with bitterness and heartache and heartbreak, but somebody who refuses to walk away from God. Someone who says, I recognize God's hand of sovereignty even when I don't like what it means for my life. And in this verse, you see someone whose heart is beginning to be touched once again by the grace and the mercy of God. This woman who had just said, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me, now says, blessed, blessed be the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. What enabled Naomi in this moment to truly rejoice? I think on some level or another, it was the fact that she had always been honest in her feelings before God. When life was falling apart, she didn't pace on a smile and try to white-knuckle her way through. She was open and honest and talked about her difficulties. She talked about them with the Lord and to the Lord. She talked about them with those around her. And that sort of honesty enables her in this moment to rejoice at God's continuing grace and goodness. Even in her hurt when she'd recognized God's sovereignty, you now see joy starting to creep its way back into her life. Verse 20, Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. 
there's two things happening in this verse. One is you see Ruth's, Ruth's healthy dependence on her relationship with Naomi. I mean, you can almost compare this to a modern day beginning of a romance where she's coming back and she's saying, yeah, I met this guy and he told me that I should come around and he'd keep his eye out on me. And Naomi's response is one of affirmation. This is a good man. Continue to do this thing. She wasn't making this call on her own. She was dependent on the godly wisdom of those that were around her. But there's a far bigger element that leaps off the page, and that is the word redeemer. And we'll talk about this much more in the weeks to come, but a redeemer in this context is one who is responsible to care for the family and all the belongings and possessions of a family member who'd passed. If you were here last week, Dave talked about it in the idea that this is someone who established justice. And so in some circumstances, someone who was a redeemer is one who would go purchase out of slavery one who had been sold into slavery. These were people who redeemed what had been lost and what had been broken. They were caretakers and they were people who were responsible. And there's a couple things to consider even in this element because we don't want to miss the beauty of God's generosity being played out through the life of Boaz here. Because first of all, understand that generally the responsibility of a redeemer only extended to immediate family. And so even though, uh, even though Naomi in this passage says he is a close relative of ours, what we understand is that this is most likely someone who is part of the larger tribe of the family. This probably isn't a brother of Elimelech. This probably isn't a direct, uh, a direct immediate family member of Elimelech. But this is somebody that is in his line. And in addition to that, understand that the role of a redeemer only extended to those who were believing Jews. In other words, by virtue of her ethnicity, Boaz could have said, I want nothing to do with this woman and she is not my responsibility. He would have been well within his rights to ignore her. But he doesn't. And in verse 23 it says, So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So you see God's hand in this whole story. Not only for Ruth's physical provision, but also for her relational provision. I mean, here is this woman who was not a great candidate to be married in this culture. Not because there was anything wrong with her. She was a lover of, G a lover of God, rather. She was one who had begun to be devoted to the one true God of Israel. But everything about her background and everything about her experience would have led someone in, a, in the position of, of, of being a young man who's of marrying age in, in Israel to ignore her. She's foreign. She used to worship a demon god. She's a widow. She's got all of these things seemingly going against her. She could have ended up in anyone's field, but God in his kindness provides a man who is more perfect for her than she could have ever imagined. And all of this happens while Ruth is trusting in the will of God, having no idea if he's ever going to provide a spouse. Not even knowing where her next meal is going to come from. 
And we don't know where Boaz was prior to this. I mean, maybe he likewise was a widower. There's many indications uh, historically that perhaps he was significantly older than her. Maybe he's been single his whole life, longing for a wife. Maybe he had kind of resigned himself um, to being alone for his life. But whatever the case is, God takes these two people in the midst of their hard work and in the midst of their everyday lives, and he begins to lead them together for his glory. And what a contrast this is to the life of Elimelech. This man who had grown up in religiosity and who had grown up in the nation of Israel hearing about the goodness and the provision of God, but who didn't trust that God and tried to manipulate and control his own circumstances to bring his will about. And in that pursuit, he ended up with nothing. But then here's Ruth and Boaz who trusted God's provision, who trusted his timing, and waited on the Lord and saw magnificent provision. So the practical question for us today is, in what areas are you struggling to trust the Lord? And I realize it's a broad question. And for some of you, maybe it's like Ruth and Boaz, maybe it's a relationship and you're wondering how that's going to play out and what that looks like for you. And for others, maybe it's a job or a career, your path didn't turn out quite the way that you thought it would, and and now you're in a job that's just a jobby job, <laughs> just something to pay the bills. There's no fulfillment. And for others of you, maybe it's an issue with your family. There's heartache. Kids who walked away from the Lord. Divorce and broken relationships. Parents who won't speak on the phone to you. The question that we're faced with through the life of Ruth and Boaz is, are you trying to force God's hand to fit your will? Or are you trusting your life to his will? Because not only does God in his goodness provide for our needs, but he also provides us with a redeemer. Understand that just like Ruth, we were a people who were far off from God. Just like her, we were spiritually destitute. Just like her, we were a people who hated God by virtue of the decisions of our life and the natural inclination of our soul. And we arrived with no claim and no status and no title and no family. But Jesus functioned as our Redeemer. Just like Boaz, he saw our condition, the lostness of our lives, the lack of direction, and in the case of our spirits, deadness to the things of God. And with that, without any sort of outside obligation, with nothing other than his own love and grace, he gave himself for us and to us. And so that's what we celebrate when we come to the table together. Faithful, providing, redeeming God who gave his son that we might know him and belong. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this story, for this saga that, it, that reveals to us so much about who you are 
about your nature and your character and your goodness, even in moments when we don't see it, even in moments where we question it, even in moments where we doubt it. And so God, for some who find themselves in the place of Naomi, bitter, hurt, feeling empty, would you remind them that you're still in control? Would you remind them that there's a day coming in this life or the next where you bring about ultimate joy and satisfaction and fulfillment and that you give patience and grace to get through each day? For those who are trusting but wondering, would you help them to trust faithfully, believing that you are a God of provision? And though your timing and your means and your manner may not be what we choose, realizing that the end of that road is so much better than anything we could manipulate or manage. God, reveal to us where those areas are in our lives, and they are many, where we don't trust you. And help us to look to you for our satisfaction and our dependence. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.